0: Turn, if you will, to our text this morning, which comes from Paul's letter to the Philippians. We'll be looking at verses uh, 18b to verse 26. So, verse 18b to 26. Hear with me, then, the reading of God's Word. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers, Thus far as the reading of God's word. If you remember from last week we looked at verses 18 to, or 12 to 18, where Paul tells the saints in Philippi that he's okay. He's in good spirits, he's full of joy. And he told them this because the brothers were fearful that if they preached Christ that they would have the same fate as Paul, imprisonment, possibly death, a terrible and painful death. But So Paul wanted to shift the focus away from that to what's truly important. For Paul was Christ-centered. He lived a life of self-denial, willing to lay everything and all aside for the sake of Christ and the Gospel. And so what was it that Paul told the saints? He told the saints that because of his imprisonment, in fact, the Gospel is having far-reaching effects. And the brothers, upon hearing this and seeing its effects... It brought them confidence in the Lord that God was working out His purposes. Paul wasn't abandoned by God, but rather God was working to execute His plan within Paul. And this emboldened the saints to even themselves preach Christ and to not fear any longer. Yet Paul goes on then to tell the saints, we read, that uh, how much uh, he desired the advancement of the Gospel. And the way that he told the saints about this was, uh, we're telling them about these false teachers. These false teachers who are envious of Paul and yet only preach for the purpose of causing him greater uh, physical harm, possibly even death. But Paul told the saints, it doesn't matter if that's, what they, if that's what they're trying to do. If one preaches out of love or one preaches out of envy, it doesn't matter as long as they are preaching Christ. This is how he answers his own question. Remember from verse 18. What then? He says, some preach out of love, some preach out of envy. What then? What are we to do about those who are preaching out of envy? And Paul's response was, unlike anything that you and I would probably say. We would say, stop them. They're trying to cause us harm. This could spell our death. But this was not Paul's response. Paul's response was, as long as they are continuing to preach the Gospel, let them continue. For God is using them and their preaching of the Gospel to convert sinners. For in it, God is demonstrating that the power is in the Word and not in man. That's why God chose to use that which uh, those who are uneducated or inarticulate to proclaim the Word. Because in it, it demonstrates to us the power of God. It's not the morality or immorality of the person who is speaking. Right? For example, if you are if you were baptized in a Christian church upon profession of the faith, and twenty years later you learn that the guy who baptized you, he's an apostate now, doesn't believe. Does that mean you have to be re baptized? Of course not. Because the power wasn't in the man, the power was in the word of God. And so the same is true here. And so we see that for Paul Christ and the gospel were a first priority. And so we will see this morning then why Paul can be so indifferent uh, whether he lives or whether he dies. Although he says, I desire to to die because that's gain for Paul. He's going to be with the Lord. But yet Paul sees great advantages for him living as well. Yet this indifference that he shows baffles many, especially this world. You say, why could he be indifferent to death? Death is such a scary topic for so many. It's only a a natural desire to want to maintain one's life. Yet at the same time, life is filled with many struggles. You have financial struggles. You have family struggles. You have uh, broken relationships. You have health issues. And all these things, day after day after day that you experience, can kind of accumulate and build up and cause you to not see life as such a good thing anymore. Right? where you don't see life as good. Yet, at the same time, death sparks an even greater fear. People are so afraid of death that they don't want to uh, talk about it, let alone think about it. Death is seen by this world as something bad. And so on one hand, you have the pains and afflictions of this world. On the other hand, you have the terrors of death. And they're both seen as non-desirable. Right? For, the, for, the, for many in this world, it's a, a lose-lose situation. But they... If you gave him a choice, he'd rather pick living over death, as that scene is kind of the, the 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 lesser of two evils. But we have to ask ourselves: Is is this how Paul seen life and death? Is this how the believer is to see life and death? And the answer is no, for Paul seen life and death both as two great blessings. They were both good choices, either one. And so the question is: Well, why does Paul view it one way, and why does? The world view it in such a drastically different way than Paul, and it's because happiness and joy for this world is found in the standards of this world. Happiness means I have uh, amassed great wealth, I have a perfect marriage, I have the the right amount of kids—that's two kids, one boy and one girl. I have good health, I have uh, you know a great car. But what happens when your expectations for life? fall way short and you're poor and you're in an unhappy marriage and your kids don't like you very much and you have to work two jobs to survive and you don't have good health. Right? You've set these expectations so high that you've come so short of meeting them. And so for you, life is no longer filled with joy. You, don't, you can't find joy in life because you aspire for something in which you have not attained. And yet, death for the unbeliever is even worse because death means destruction. You die, you're buried, you go into the ground and that's it. Well, for some, maybe they come back as like an oak tree or something. But for most of the world, when you die, it's over. So that means for them the end of joy because it means the end of all these earthly things that you've loved so much. These earthly things that you've uh, set your whole life around. Yet for Paul and for the believer, our joy isn't attached to anything earthly. Our joy is attached to that which is spiritual. This is why Paul could lose his very freedom and still rejoice. No earthly thing was Paul in need of for joy. He says later in chapter 4 that he has learned to be content in all things, whether having little or having much. Why is that? Why is that? because poverty or wealth, having much or having little, was of no concern to Paul. His happiness, his joy, was not attached to earthly things, but it was attached to Christ. Paul's whole aim in living was to magnify the name of Christ. This is what he says here in our text today. In verse 20, he desires that Christ would be honored, magnified, exalted in his body, whether life or death. In verse 22 he says, if he lives, this means labor for Christ. If he dies, this means being in the presence of Christ. He doesn't say life for me means uh, greater wealth, uh, more prestige, fancy clothes. And he doesn't say that death means complete end of story. And he certainly doesn't say that death means end of joy. For this world, even if they believe they're going to heaven, they don't find much reason to rejoice. Especially when they hear that heaven is being in the presence of God forever. Even believers nowadays find it hard to set aside one hour, let alone one day, to be in the presence of God. So it seems like a terrible thing, (laughs) heaven, to be in the presence of God continually worshipping Him forever. But this appeals to you and I. This appeals to the Christian. For our mind is focused on that which is heavenly and that which is spiritual, unlike this world. This is why life and death for this world is a lose lose situation. Life and death for this world is a lose lose. But for Paul and for the Christian, what Paul is saying is it's a win win for us. Either way, it's a can't lose situation as Paul views it. And so the question is do you view life and death in the same way? Do you view life and death the same way? Or is death still something that is terrifying and frightening to you? It shouldn't be. Brothers and sisters, for you have heard the Gospel and you have believed and so now you have a blessed hope. It's a hope that's firm and fixed and certain for it's grounded in the promises of God. And so life should be enjoyed. You should enjoy life, but not because you have a little or a lot but because you have Christ. He gives you vigor to live. He gives you a reason to live. And the same holds true for death. We should look forward to death. Death should no longer be terrifying for us. And the reason why is because of Christ. Either way, Christ should be the center of our focus, whether in life or in death. This is why Paul could be indifferent to life or death, because both for him meant Christ. If I if I live, this this means continually laboring for Christ. If I die, this means being in the presence of Christ. Two great choices. We've all probably watched the show The Price Is Right. It was one of my favorite shows growing up. The Showcase Showdown, I loved it. Where you get these you get these two people, who after spinning the wheel, you know the highest scores, they go into the showdown, and the person with the highest score first gets to choose between these two options that they have. Usually they're both very nice. You get a vacation to vacation to Spain and maybe one's to Greece. In one package you have a car and in one a motorcycle. And so that person who first gets to choose is like, man, I don't know what to choose. There are advantages to both. I really would like to ride the motorcycle, but I've never been to Spain. And so they have to contemplate. right? This is... Uh, an, an earthly uh, situation that I'm, or uh, similarity that I'm showing you, but this is what Paul is saying. Paul had two great choices, life or death, and both had their advantages. And so today, this morning, as we look at verse 18 through 26, we're going to see what does living mean for Paul? What did life meant, And what did death meant, And what does it mean for the saints? So what does living mean? What does, de- what does dying mean? And what does it mean for the saints? So one thing that we can say that both living and dying meant for Paul, both, jot down in both categories, is it meant Paul's deliverance. And we see this in verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now some Bibles, in the ESV Bible, you'll see it's, It's translated deliverance. But this also can be translated salvation. And so perhaps if you read it and it says deliverance, you might be thinking to yourself that Paul's speaking about his physical deliverance. But I don't think that that's what Paul has in mind here in verse 19. Um, And I say that because of the context. We already know that Paul knows that death may be his sentence at any moment. That he, he could be dying right now, any moment. And so what he's saying is that whether he lives or he dies, he knows Christ will be exalted. Look at verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. What is Paul's eager expectation? That he won't be ashamed, he won't renounce God, he's not going to turn away from Him, and that Christ will be magnified in him whether by life or by death. So, to, paraphr- to paraphrase kind of what Paul's saying is whether I live or die, it doesn't matter because it's turning out for my salvation. It's turning out for my deliverance. Because living means that through the prayers of the saints and through the aid of the Holy Spirit, he knows that he will not forsake Christ. He will not turn away. He will not deny him. For the Holy Spirit will provide Paul all that he needs spiritually to continue on in his ministry. The Spirit and the prayers of the saints also will help to persevere to preserve Paul in the faith as long as he lives. God will continue to work out his saving purposes in Paul's life until he brings him home. And you know how Paul knows that? Because he has the promise of God. He has the promise of God. in Romans 8.28, we're all familiar with this text. And those whom He predestined, he also called... And those he, called, those he called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. Also in verse 35, Paul says this in Romans, Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or the sword? You see, Paul knew even the sword, meaning death, would result in His deliverance, would result in His salvation. Because no one or nothing could separate God from loving Him and no one and nothing could separate Him from loving God. And Paul knew that death then meant freedom from affliction. Freedom from affliction. He would have been delivered from all the sufferings of this present world. As by the prayers of the saints and the aid of the Spirit, he knew that he would not renounce the faith even if it meant his very head. Paul wasn't going to be put to shame, he says. But this is the reality of those who abandon Christ. When Christ returns, they will shrink back and be put to shame. For in the same circumstances, they would have easily and happily renounced Christ to, to be freed from prison or to be freed from death. But this is not true of the saints. And so we can have confidence that we will remain faithful until the end. Paul was assured of this, remaining faithful to the end, because he knew that the Holy Spirit would give him unyielding courage until the end. And so the question is, do you share in Paul's courage or the shame of the apostate? Is your life centered around Christ? Are you growing in certainty and assurance that this heavenly inheritance is yours? Or are you still clinging to this world? You want to hold on to everything earthly that you love, yet try to hold on to Christ having one foot in each. This will provide you no confidence, no assurance. Rather, what it will do is cause you uncertainty. If you are remaining stagnant or regressing, if you have no desire to daily read or pray or together with the saints, how can you know that you are Christ? If you don't give evidence, of the reality that you have been saved. How can you feel secure that this heavenly inheritance is yours? This is why as Christians we're told to work on our salvation with fear and trembling. Not because we can do it on our own, but because we can do it because we have been enabled by the Holy Spirit. And that is now your desire to do it. It's not burdensome to you. Because you're doing it in and through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's stirring up within you godly desires. And so if you don't have those desires, you cannot have confidence. And yet for the saint, hearing about Paul's confidence, hearing about Paul's courage in the midst of these trials, does it not cause you to desire to have that same confidence and courage as Paul? To be able to say to God, God, no matter what circumstance you place me in, no matter what it means, whether life or death, agony and pain, Do with me as you please. And I happily accept. I happily accept. But what else does living then mean for Paul? Not only does living mean salvation for Paul, but it means fruitful labor. He says in verse 22, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Paul knows that if he's released from prison, he's going back out to proclaim the Word of God, and to help the saints grow in the faith. Isn't this incredible? Think about it. Paul is in prison. He has no freedom, no privacy. He's shackled to a guard constantly. Death may be his sentence. And Paul says, I know exactly what I'm doing if I'm set free. I'm going right back out and doing what got me thrown in prison to begin with. Paul was determined to, in whatever circumstance with his life, honor God. Can we say the same of our life? Have we determined that in no matter what situation, in no matter what circumstance, we will honor God, even if that means our own dishonor? Will we honor God even if it means our own dishonor? Remember from Acts chapter 5 we looked at last week, where Peter and the disciples were arrested for preaching Christ and they were beaten they were charged no longer to speak the name of Christ and as they were freed and let go they went away rejoicing they could suffer dishonor for God there's another example we can look at turn to Hebrews chapter 11 turn to Hebrews chapter 11 Look at verses 23 through 28. Hebrews chapter 11, 23 through 28. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater than the wealth, than the treasures of of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. We see here, Moses willingly chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to have the easy life, to have the the greatest riches here on earth. And what was his motivation for that? Because it says he, he saw the reproach of Christ to be of even greater wealth than all of the earthly riches he could have obtained. What is wealth? That could be something that could be discussed. What is real wealth? What is true wealth? This world sees true wealth as amassing a lot of money being able to buy whatever you want. But you know one thing that this world cannot buy regardless of how much wealth they accumulate? Eternal life. They cannot buy eternal life. We see uh, nowadays some of the richest people, they try to like freeze themselves when they die, hoping that they'll be able to live forever when they find a cure, right? But they can't. Eternal life only comes through faith in Christ. And so this is why Moses was willing to suffer disgrace, insult, suffering, shame, dishonor. He gladly took it all upon himself for the cause of Christ. Willing to abandon all that this world would consider to be earthly enjoyments, earthly riches. And likewise, Paul would have gladly been thrown back in prison if he was to be released for the sake of Christ. As long as Paul had breath, he was using it to further and advance the Gospel. He was using it to help build up the church, to grow the saints. Life for Paul meant fruitful labor for God. Is this what living means for you? Or does living mean for you a life free from suffering? A life of ease and comfort? A life where you get To do and have and try everything that your heart desires. Things should not be our motivation in this world. Things in and of themselves are not necessarily bad. But they are when they become your motivation, your driving force. Christ for the Christian should be our motivation. Christ for the Christian should should be what drives all that we do. How we live. And for each one of us then, what that should mean is fruitful labor. For each one of us, that should mean fruitful labor. Yet, it can mean different things for different people. So, for example, for the mother who's at home with her children, perhaps fruitful labor for you is to be preaching Christ to your children, to be teaching them of the Bible, to be trying to stir up uh, their desire and their love for Christ. That is a way in which a mother can fruitfully labor even in the home. She could be Uh, uh, being a a display for other women to see what a godly mother and a godly wife looks like. And when others see this, they're drawn to you. And they want to know, how is it that you are in such a way? How can you do this with all that's going on? And this will give you opportunity to proclaim the name of Christ. For those of us who who work, at work, working really hard may be a a way in which you can labor fruitfully for Christ. Because in, in working hard, you know that your service is unto God that you are working in order to please Him and not man. Yet in your work, people are going to see this and they're going to say, man, He works like no one else. There's something different about Him. It's going to draw other people to you. And then that likewise will give you opportunity to proclaim the name of Christ. But no matter what stage of life we are in, we are to be using it to be fruitful in our life for the glory of Jesus Christ. But now what does, what does death mean for Paul? We know what life and what living means for Paul, but what does death mean for Paul? Well, why could he say in verse 23, I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. Because death for Paul means that we are released from this life. Although this life is good and this life should be enjoyed, it is marred by sin. And so death means freedom from sin it means no more battling between your flesh and your spirit it means no more having to deal with the effects of the curse right and so whatever you consider uh maybe you consider your life to be really happy maybe you say my life's really good i have a lot of joy in life I, and i found that joy in christ even well even the greatest joy you have on this earth will not compare to the joy you will experience when you die Think of your most joyous moments here on earth. Perhaps your own conversion, the conversion of a spouse or a parent or a child. That pales in comparison to the joy that we will experience in heaven. And why is that? What is it about heaven that Paul found so desirable? It is being in the presence of Christ. Heaven is desirable because that is where Christ is. This is why death is to be desired. Because it means being unendingly in the presence of Christ. And wherever Christ is, is where the saints want to be. See, this world detests the presence of Christ. They find no joy in it. Heaven doesn't excite them. The thought of it doesn't cause them to rejoice. But for the believer, there will be no greater joy. The joy we will, we will have is unfathomable, really. Human words can't even express The inexpressible. The inexpressible glory that awaits you and I. In it, to your capacity, you will have all the love. You will have all the peace. You will have all the joy. You will have all the kindness. All the patience. The patience that we lack. Overflowed to your capacity. You will be lacking nothing. You will be perfectly holy We could see now why Paul would rather depart and be with Christ. Heaven will be filled with such glory. This glory which John in the book of Revelation figuratively describes to us, gives us some visual of what it will be like by comparing it to the most precious of jewels, the most beautiful, the most desirable. He says it will be like pure gold. It will be arrayed with every kind of jewel. I won't name all the jewels he says because I don't want to embarrass myself by not being able to pronounce them properly. But I will say, when you go home today, read chapter 21 of, of Revelation for the ones I can't pronounce. He says it will be built with sapphire, with emerald, with amethyst, with pearl, and so on. All right? This gives you a glimpse to the total otherness that awaits us in heaven. But again, first and foremost for Paul, What he had in view was being with the Lord. Being in the presence of Christ. Seeing Christ face to face. You see, for the believer right now, Christ dwells with us. But it is by the Spirit through faith. But the presence of Christ in which we will experience in heaven will be unexpressible. It will be incomparable. I read somewhere in one of the commentaries on on uh, the, the joy of this life to the joy of the next, or the glory of this life to the glory of the next. He, they, they said this about it. The presence that we that we experience now of Christ is but absence when you think about the glory and presence of Christ we will have in heaven. The, the presence of Christ now is but absence to what it is we will experience when we are with him in heaven. Paul says something similar to that in First Thessalonians four seventeen when speaking of the return of the Lord, he says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Heaven is marked with the constancy of being with the Lord. He will always be there. We will suffer no lack. Now, here on earth, we oftentimes can say to ourselves, God feels far away from me. Or I don't don't feel Him near me. I feel as if He's turned turned away from me. I mean, how often do we hear the, the psalmist say, don't hide your face from me, God. Come near to me. But in heaven there will be an uninterrupted bliss and joy of being in the presence of God forever. No interruption of His presence. No lack of His presence. You'll be filled with His presence. And we will in heaven we will see Christ according to his body. How amazing is that. You will see Christ face to face, you will be standing face to face with your Saviour. This is what John says, first John chapter three, verse two. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. No wonder why Paul can be indifferent to whether he lives or whether he dies. We all have people that we admire here on earth that we would we would, love to be able to meet. But meeting Christ far surpasses any of this. For in it, you will be face to face with God through the body of Christ, through Christ's humanity. You will see God. And so the question then remains, our final point of this morning, What does it all mean for the saints? Well, it means that for you and I, as long as we remain, we are to be progressing in the Christian life. This is what Paul says in verse 25. Convinced of this, that being for their benefit it was necessary, he stays alive. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. You see, the Christian life is a life of progress. Christ didn't save us and then say, okay, now do whatever it is you please. No, He saved us with a purpose to have fellowship with God. And the way in which we have fellowship with God is through faith in Jesus Christ. He saved us so we might have fellowship with Him through faith in Christ. We have been granted. We have been given this faith, yet this initial faith should not remain stagnant. Neither should it wither. But it should be blossoming faith. We have many uh, gardeners here. What is it that you do when you when you plant a seed, or you plant a little bush, or you plant a little tree? You expect it to grow. You expect it to blossom. That's the purpose it was put in the ground, right? And so, if it if it withers or it just stays the same, you're like, what's wrong with it? It's not serving its purpose. The same is true for you and I, Christian. God has implanted within us His Word. He has given us His faith. He has given us faith so that we might not remain stagnant or that we might not wither or regress, but that we might blossom in faith. Remember, Paul in jail, he grew in obedience. He grew in dependence and patience. And likewise, Paul desires that for the saints. He desires that we likewise constantly be growing. That's why he felt it more necessary to remain on earth for our account. So that we might continue to grow. And so part of growing then in faith means understanding our our own weaknesses and understanding our own deficiencies. That we know who it is we ought to turn to for everything that we need. Paul later in chapter 4, verse 13 will say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right? We are to be progressing, learning that it is the, that we are to live our life in the strength of Jesus Christ. Yet this means also that we must be learning humility in order to lean upon our Maker for all things, not upon ourselves. What does this mean? This means knowing the thoughts of God. Becoming more Christ-like. And God has given us His Word in order to understand all that He desires for us. And so that means also we are to be growing in our knowledge, in our wisdom, in our understanding. But Paul also says that he wants the saints to grow in the joy of faith. Why Why joy, does Paul say? What's the reason for joy? Well, joy is the reason for which Paul could live in any and every circumstance. This is why he could readily suffer persecution. Because he was filled with joy. What does Paul say in chapter 4, verse 4? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, Rejoice. Paul's joy was grounded in Christ. It was joy that was founded in truth. How many of us can say that this joy characterizes our lives as well? When you woke up this morning, did you have joy knowing that you were coming to church? Was that your first inclination? Well, your, an- your answer internally demonstrates to you that you must still be progressing Enjoy That your first inclination is to rejoice in the Lord. Paul wanted the saints to have joy and to have faith because these were the things which were most helpful to him in his imprisonment. And he knew that the saints needed joy and needed faith in order to deal with the sufferings and persecutions that they were going to deal with in the Christian life. And so not only should Paul desire this for us, but we should desire this for ourselves. We should desire to be growing in conformity to Christ. We should desire to have greater joy, to have greater faith, that we may be equipped for every good work in Christ Jesus. That we may, in our lives, glorify God. And so as we draw then to a close this morning, we've seen why Paul can be so indifferent to whether he lives or whether he dies. For living means fruitful labor to the Lord, and dying means being with Christ. And so for you here today if you are a believer you can utter the same words as Paul did in verse 21 For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain as the gospel has radically altered your view of life and death this world is not what we hold dear to anymore now we find our satisfaction in Christ our satisfaction isn't uh, on what we can amass the, our earthly accumulations Rather, we are satisfied in serving Him, in glorifying Him, in professing His name. Yet, as long as we live, we ought to be progressing in the Christian life. And so, yet we have much to distract ourselves from Christ. Right? We have TV. We have the Internet. We have shopping. We have sports. Even sin. Yet, anything that offends God should offend His believers, His followers. And so let us not hinder our relationship with Christ, but rather aid it and help it by living in complete submission to the will of God. Let us fix our eyes on Christ in anticipation for being face to face with Him. Let us grow in our desire to depart and to be with the Lord, seeing that it is being far greater than anything that this world has to offer. So that no matter what happens to us on earth, persecution, illness, sufferings, imprisonment. It doesn't cause us to flinch because we know regardless we are Christ. And so I want to leave you then with one final quote uh, in order to perhaps help you with how we ought to view both life and death, how we ought not to, to fear sin, how we are, we are to fear sin, how we are not to fear death. And so this quote comes from C.S. Lewis. I I found this in an article. And so C.S. Lewis is asked by this reporter, what would you do if you looked up and you seen a bomb about to fall on top of you? And he said, I would look up, I would stick my tongue out, and I would say, phooey, bomb. You're just a bomb, but I'm an immortal soul. Let us likewise stick our tongues out at death. Death no longer has sting over us if we are Christ's. Let us be able to look death square in the eyes and whether it be by a bomb or by natural causes, know that what death means for us is to be absent from the body and for our soul to be present with God for all of eternity. Okay? Please bow your heads with me. In prayer. Heavenly Father, we we thank you that you have through your Gospel, through the giving us your Spirit, through the Works and merits of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ radically shaped our view of life and death. No matter what our situation is, our joy, our happiness is no longer found in things. Things do not sway us, but rather it is Christ. And so we pray, Lord, that you would cause us a greater desire to know Christ more, that whether in life or death, we can rejoice. We ask You, Lord, that You would continue to form within us the same mind that Paul had, the same mind that uh, all saints should have, that living means living for Christ. We pray that You would give us the desire that as long as we live, we use our, our life for the sake of Christ. Yet, Lord, we also pray that we would die well, that You would help us to die well, that we would not... To have a great fear and terror and be frightened by death like this world is, who have no hope. But Father, you have given us a blessed hope. We thank you for this. We thank you, Lord, that we can know it's fixed and certain because it is founded on the very promise of God and we know that God does not lie. That God is sovereign all things over all things and will work out all things according to his good will and purposes. And God will not change. His promise and His plan is fixed and sure. And so, Father, we thank You that You have given us this faith, that You have given us this hope, and that You are persevering us until the very end. And we thank You and we praise You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.